Hey, Acquired listeners. We hope you enjoy this episode with CFO of Zillow Group, Kathleen Phillips. Just a quick heads up that the audio quality is a little bit rough this time around, and we recommend listening on speakers rather than headphones if you're able. We'll get back to our normal standards next episode. Thanks for bearing with us. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome to episode 22 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. We're on a serious roll here at Acquired, and we have an awesome, awesome guest for you today. We'll be talking about Zillow's 2015 acquisition of Trulia and their M&A strategy overall. Kathleen Phillips is our guest. She is the CFO of Zillow Group and was formerly Zillow's COO and general counsel. She has run corporate development for her entire six-year history at the company. She's also previously been a VP and general counsel for StubHub and Hotwire. Welcome, and thanks so much for coming on, Kathleen. Well, thank you guys very much for having me. I'm super excited about having this conversation with you today. So are we. So are we. Thank you. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus, to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the Visa numbers, I just pulled up my Visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and Friends of the Show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. All right. Well, uh, 
I think uh, I think it's time to dive in. With so, that. Yeah. I, I, you know, normally uh, Kathleen David leads us through the acquisition history and facts. Um, I figured the best way to cover it um, in, in this episode would be kind of David, you lead and, and kind of have a ca- uh, discussion with Kathleen on. Um, yeah, know, I'm sure right. lots of uh, lots and lots of good stuff will come up. This was a um, uh, as we we joke on the show uh, and we were joking with Kathleen before we started recording. We love two things. We love public company acquisitions, two things on the show, public company acquisitions where everything about the negotiations comes out in the SEC filings. And lawsuits where the same thing happens. So, uh, fortunately, we just have the former. Yes, fortunately, case. just the former uh, in this case. For I'm sure for Kathleen's sanity. Um, so maybe I will do a very quick uh, history and facts on the founding uh, of both Zillow and Trulia, and then um, we'll jump into the acquisition process with Kathleen. Um, so. Uh, Zillow uh, was founded in 2005 by Rich Barton and Lloyd Frank, uh, who previously had worked together at Microsoft uh, here in Seattle, and then had founded Expedia in 1996, which probably most of our listeners are familiar with. Um, and that was, a lot of people don't know these days, was founded within Microsoft. It was part, it was a division within Microsoft that they started. And then um, they spun it out from Microsoft, and it became a separate public company in 2001. Um and then in 2005, they left and they started um, started Zillow. And uh, Zillow's uh, is focused as is Trulia on um, the U.S. Uh, housing market uh, and buying and selling of houses and real estate. And um, Zillow's big innovation uh, that was the big brand that they launched with in 2006 was this concept of the Zestimate. So it was a data driven. Um, estimate for every home in their database about what that home would be worth on the market. And this was, I believe, the first time that U.S. homeowners had any idea of what, you know, any indication of what the value of their house might be without actually putting it on the market. Um, And it was based on a whole bunch of factors, uh, but especially access to um, comps of uh, houses that were selling in the market around the house. Um, So this was a big deal, generated a lot of press. Um, Zillow, over its private company lifespan, raised about $80 million in venture capital from Benchmark, TCV, and others, uh, ends up going public in July of 2011. And we will press pause and pick up the story in a minute. Meanwhile, Trulia um, was, unlike Zillow, which is based up here in Seattle, Trulia was founded a year earlier in 2004 in the Bay Area uh, by Pete Flint and Sami Inkinen. Uh, who were actually students at a place close to my heart, the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Uh, They were MBA students, and they founded the company in between their first and second years um, uh, when they were, according to legend, uh, and I know how difficult this was having lived through it, trying to find housing uh, for their second year at Stanford Business School in Palo Alto and having a very difficult time and thought there's got to be a better way. Um, so they work on it during their second year. Uh, they end up raising over the years um, uh, significantly less in venture capital, $33 million uh, from Excel and Sequoia and others. Um, and then truly it goes public in September of 2012. And that's where we pick up the story actually a little bit before then um, when according to the SEC filings of the ultimate acquisition. It was actually before Trulia went public, but after Zillow had just gone public, 
that Zillow approached Trulia the first time about potentially acquiring the company in late 2011. So uh, I, I want to um, pause and say, Kathleen, number one, did, did we, we get any of that? Uh, or is, is that all right? And then number two, had, had you been at, at Zillow yet at this point? Um, yes, I joined Zillow in July of 2010, almost exactly a year before um, we completed our IPO. So 2010 through July of 2011 for me was completely focused on getting that deal done. Um, and then the rest of it, you got absolutely right. Great. So you'd just gone public in in 2011, and then it must have been very shortly thereafter that you approached Trulia this first time. Um, what was, uh, were you guys kind of waiting to get public and then, and then sort of, uh, approach Trulia from, from that position of strength there? How did, what was the thought process, uh, behind that? Yeah. So it was, it was more a factor of us having, you know, liquid public currency following the IPO. And that was actually one of the primary reasons that we concluded the IPO. And you can see that if you look at our timeline of acquisitions, um, we had done one small acquisition prior to July 2011. Um, but then as we had stock available that was um, liquid and publicly traded, that was really our goal was to give us the flexibility to pursue more acquisitions. And truly, it was a natural choice to start with first. Yep. And Gosh, we know, uh, you know, being uh, on the VC side and working with many private companies, you know, some of which at various times are uh, either approached by or thinking about approaching other private companies to talk about merging. And it is so difficult to agree on value when both companies, nobody has any idea what either company's stock is worth. That's absolutely true. And it's also a complex endeavor to think about an acquisition of the scale that it would have been um, between Zillow and Trulia followed by an IPO um, and having to construct that story is far more complicated than, you know, knowing our own business as we did and being able to tell a great story to the yeah, street. And not to mention having, you know, when, when public companies acquire one another, all the, all their financial data is available to the public. Whereas when you're private, absolutely. Um, so in uh, in this round of talks uh, in 2011, Trulia does end up hiring uh, an investment bank as an advisor. They hire Catalyst, um, but talks break down in early 2012. Um, and then in August 2012, so a few months later, uh, Trulia is preparing their own IPO and uh, Kathleen and Zillow approach again <laughs> and try a second time. Um, did uh, did you guys know that Trulia was was on the path to going public at that point? Oh, definitely. I mean, it was such a nat a natural um, thing for them to be doing. You know, we had we had forged a path ahead for them. They had a very similar story. Um, we knew that that was something they aspired to do. Um, so we, we expected that that would happen. Did you ever consider waiting to IPO for them to IPO first and give uh, give investors confidence in this sort of business? You know, we never really thought about it um, with respect to them. I and mean, we, we were always a much larger player. Um, so, you know, we, we were charting our own course. Um, so we, we didn't really think about our timing relative to theirs. Got it. Yeah. So talks break down again for the second time. Um, and in September of 2012, Trulia completes their IPO uh, and uh, continues 
executing as a public company for a while as a Zillow at this point. And um, I believe during the first couple of years, um, I I didn't look up the exact number, but I'm remembering, uh, I remember it super well when Zillow went public. It was one of the first Seattle tech companies to go public in a long time. Um, and uh, the market, Zillow's market cap, I believe, was what right around six, seven hundred million dollars at at IPO. Yeah, I think that's about right. It's it's been a while. Um, the thing that I remember very well is that our revenue, I think, was something around forty million. Which um, the reason I I note that is because when we look at our group of emerging businesses now, they're larger than we were when we went public. So um, we've made a lot of progress in the last five years. It's pretty terrific. Yeah. I mean, the growth was just incredible in, uh, uh, still is, but in those early years as, as a public company. And by this point, you know, after truly as IPO and a couple of years later, again, I don't have the information in front of me, but you were, you know, your market cap was multiples higher of what it had been at the IPO, I believe. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, and, uh, um, so a couple years go by finally spring of 2014. Um, so not quite two years after Trulia's IPO and the last time Zillow and Trulia had danced the acquisition dance. Um, Zillow is, is still thinking about, about, you know, this, and it's a natural fit that, uh, these two companies would come together. Um, and so you guys take an interesting step and you, uh, go out and you talk to public shareholders of both Zillow and Trulia under NDA with um, with major shareholders to talk about potential, according to the SEC filings, uh, quote, potential strategic opportunities, including the acquisition of Trulia. Um, what, uh, how did, how did you guys think about taking that step? Uh-huh. So there's a, there's an important clarification here, which is they were the same shareholders. So um, our, our major shareholders also held a stake in Trulia. So this was not a matter of us approaching Trulia shareholders who we did not have in common. Um, so it, it, it makes a little bit more sense when you think about it from that perspective. And part of the invest of this, of our, invest, our investors all along who were invested in both was that ultimately there would be a transaction. Um, you know, they had no ability to predict when or to direct that. Um, but it was such a natural industrial logic that um, that was part of what they were betting on. That makes sense. And and uh, at this point in time, and I'm sure still the thesis of a lot of public company invest or you know, public markets investors that hold um, Zillow Group stock is, you know, real estate is this enormous enormous market, and it's coming online for the first time. And you know, the market share of online players in real estate is still tiny compared to the whole market. And we just want to invest in in that wave that's coming. That's absolutely right. And, you know, one of the, the stats that bears that out is that we think that notwithstanding our category leadership, you know, we have about two thirds of the traffic um, on the web overall and three quarters on mobile on Zillow brand properties. Um, and yet we only touch about 4% of real estate transactions in the U.S. Yeah. Wow. So there's a massive greenfield still there for us to, uh, to take advantage of. And we're, you know, we see this huge opportunity ahead of us still. Yeah, that's, it's incredible. It still boggles my mind, you know, having followed this market, you know, closely for several years, um, how little of the real estate market is, as you said, being touched by any online player, whether it's, whether it's you guys or Redfin or other folks, um, 
it's uh you know and having having shopped for houses myself online i can't imagine doing it you know the <laughs> the old way through you know newspapers or just working with you know offline agents yeah i mean it it is remarkable and and obviously it's it's a key reason why we continue to invest in the business because we think it's really the long-term opportunity, you know, many years down the road when this is going to be a mature market. So it's pretty exciting. And it, it honestly, it keeps us disciplined. Um, you know, we get asked all the time, how come we haven't expanded internationally, for example. And, you know, the reason is because the opportunity right in front of us is so huge uh, that we try to stay focused on that. So it's it's a pretty exciting time. And with the Trulia acquisition, you know, we dramatically accelerated the expansion of our scale. Yeah. And, and, you know, I would bet this is one of those things where um, there are a lot of different sectors uh, right now that have a, a large uh, generation gap, as with any adoption of new technology. But real estate in particular, it seems like um, I, I'm 27, myself and, and my whole peer group, uh, kind of live on Zillow for entertainment value. I mean, it's it's amazing how... And you're not a homeowner. Right, right. Yeah, I, I rent. And it's amazing how often Zillow links get sent around. Just, just wait till you own a home and then you want to track its value. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, we hope so. Right. I mean, that's. I would imagine you have like uh, a massively. It's, it's significantly more than uh, than four percent of millennials buying homes. Right. It has to be many multiples of that, but significantly less than um, older generations. And do you guys like? Um, do you guys track that and look at that and and try to um, specifically target uh, younger folks buying homes for the first time or anything like that? Well, I think it sort of happens naturally, right? Because of the you know the. The millennials are used to doing everything online. So, yes, we keep them in mind when we're designing our products. Um, the, the cool thing about that is, you know, we've just recently taken a look at buyer activity in the market. And for the first time, about 50% of home transactions are actually involving millennials. So they're starting to buy, which wasn't happening a handful of years ago. So, you know, it's great because it's a great, uh, you know, opportunity for our product because it really resonates with them. So it's it's an exciting time as that market starts to develop and as you know as you know as you know sort of the generational focus of the real estate market shifts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's abs I mean we we see it every day in our peer group. I mean I'm uh 31 and you know it's kind of like that you know when you get to the end of your 20s early 30s it's amazing how much your conversations start shifting to like what's the real estate market like? And like, oh yeah, I've been home shopping and I put in like three <laughs> offers and uh, it's like a switch flips. <laughs> right, right. And I think that's that's much more true in Seattle. You know, in San Francisco, unfortunately, it's still pretty challenging for young people. Um, but I think in, in Seattle, you know, fo folks in their early 30s are really thinking about settling down and suddenly, you know, it's it's not uncool to be a homeowner anymore. Yeah. And uh, with the market such as it is and how competitive, like I can't imagine not having these online tools to, uh, to, to help navigate it. Um, yeah, oh, for sure. So getting back to the, the drama of the deal. Um, so you'd spoken to shareholders and, and obviously they were holding, you know, if they were already holding both stocks, they were, their thesis was, uh, I would imagine, quite supportive of a, of a combination. Um, in early June, uh, you guys end up hiring Goldman Sachs as an advisor. Uh, before you approach uh, Trulia again. Um, and then this is where uh, the, the day by day, uh, and we'll link to this in the show notes, uh, the day by day negotiations uh, in the filing are, um, 
just start to play out and it's it's so much fun to read um so apparently on june 3rd uh rich barton uh contacts pete flint the rich is is at that point was rich still the ceo of zillow or had he moved to no spencer became ceo prior to our ipo um and rich is rich was chairman throughout that time and still is got it so he's chairman and um uh he contacts pete flint who's ceo and co-founder of Trulia and uh, attempts to schedule a dinner on June 3rd and uh, quote, Mr. Flint indicated that his near term schedule would not accommodate a dinner. (laughs) Little did he know what was coming. (laughs) It happens to me all the time. So I totally understand. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, I would say, you know, not to put any words in Pete's mouth, but I think he knew very well what was coming. Um, but keep in mind the backdrop of this, which is, you know, we were we were pretty fierce competitors for a long time. Um, we each admired what the other was doing, uh, but we were playing in the same sandbox. We had been around and around about valuation a couple of times. And um, I think both companies went through a long period of believing we should just go it our own. And, you know, it shifting course from that is challenging when you're looking at a company that you've grown from the ground up. Yeah. Not to mention the, you know, the psychology here. I mean, it's a little bit of a prisoner's dilemma, right? Like you, um, you know, both sides probably, I I can only imagine the amount of posturing, like you want to show strength because even though, you know, both sides might feel, and obviously did in the end feel that a combination was, um, you know, the best outcome for both, you know, I'm sure you were, very focused on how you were going to do in that negotiation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we, we owe nothing less to our shareholders, right? Absolutely. So um, both parties are interested in getting the best terms possible. As did the, you know, Pete and, and uh, the Trulia board for their shareholders. So on June 5th, two days later, uh, Rich contacts Pete again. And uh, this time is more overt and says the Zillow board fully supports a merger proposal. And mentions that you've spoken to these shareholders that you have in common and that they're supportive of of the merger as well. And then a couple of days later, Rich um, does send the letter to Pete and to Greg Waldorf, uh, who was truly his lead director. Had in the previous negotiations, had things gotten to that point before? Had you had was was there had you guys put a put a deal on the table, so to speak, or was this a new tactic you were taking? Um, we had not directly put anything before the Trulia board. Um, we had had, um, I recall, one meeting with more more representatives of management um, on both sides. Um, and I expect and, and am sure that, that Pete and team would have conveyed the substance of our discussions to the board, but we had never directly approached the board. I mean, this was a way of kind of Turning up the urgency of the of the offer a little and bit. Indeed, I mean it's uh, the process must have been a whirlwind. I mean it was six le- uh, less than six weeks later. I think the merger ends up getting announced. So from kind of you know even though you'd had these stalled talks in the past from um, uh, over the couple of years, but you know to go from zero to fully negotiating and announcing a merger is, that's a tight timeline. Yes, and I, I actually was going to bring that up as I was looking over this. I was getting tired just reading it um, <laughs> because I remember this time so well. But the, the really critical time period that you're looking at is, you know, from July 1st when we start diligence to July 28th when we announce the merger, we did full diligence and negotiation of the acquisition agreement. Um, so 27 days I, is pretty quick. Um, 
we have a terrific internal finance and legal team, and they were working around the clock. We all were. Uh, but it's part of how we do deals at Zillow. We try to move them through really quickly so that we can get back to our day jobs. Um, I, I can't think of an acquisition that we've done that we took more than about 20 days. This one took a little bit longer because it was a little more complex. But we try to get them kicked off and done um, to avoid distraction, to avoid risk of us losing the deal. And like I said, to get back as bu- at biz- to business as usual. Yeah, which and as we were talking about before the show, I mean, one of the things that I uh, really admire about you know, getting to know uh, some of some of the folks at Zillow over the last couple of years, um, you know, and, and it's important for our audience to know, Kathleen, it's not like your only job was to be you know head of corp dev, right? Like you, right. <laughs> you had quite a lot of other operational responsibilities at the company at the same time, right? That, that is absolutely true. At the time, I was still chief operating officer of Zillow. Um, so in addition to having legal under my umbrella and corporate development, I had the whole people organization. Um, and you know, people are our most valuable asset. So I couldn't just ignore them while we were busy on this deal. And you know that didn't end with the signing of the acquisition agreement. We'll get to the FTC review and all of that later. <laughs> but for me, it was about eight months that I was pretty fully consumed on this. Wow. Um, which was great fun. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what's pretty interesting here to me is, especially um, not having lived through this with public company merger side, but on the private company side, you guys converged on a number pretty quickly. I mean, there's a range there from you know 30 of your first offer to Pete coming back after a few rounds with 37. But like... That's not a lot of difference compared to, you know, I'm used to, well, we think 10% and we think, you know, 60%. Um, you know, how, how did you guys, you know, think, structure things like, uh, I'm sure this helped it move along much faster. Like, were you, were there specific things that you did that got that range, you know, uh, tight very quickly? Yeah. So, I mean, I wish I could say we're some kind of financial geniuses and we had some model that dictated this, but it really was as simple as we had, you know, side by side, nearly 10 years of operating history. And we were always kind of two thirds and they were one third. So it was a pretty natural way to think about the valuation. Um, And interestingly, even now, you know, a year post closing, in terms of lead volume, it still is about two third to one third. So, you know, we really were quibbling at the margin there because with all the public company data out there, it was very obvious to us what the what the correct yeah. proportion was given how similar the businesses were. Which is interesting because two days later on July 5th, Rich and Pete talk again. And uh, on that conversation, they basically agree like, yep, 33% is what makes sense here. Um, and then they move on to start discussing some of the non-price related terms, which I want to get into, which I'm sure were fascinating. And, and at least according to the filings, that's when they first start discussing retention packages for the Trulia management team and employees, um, especially for you, given you know, that you were in charge of people at the time, too. Like, how, does, how did you guys start to think about that? I mean, it ends up the final package, I believe, you know, we'll get to at the end, but I, I believe ends up being $33 million in equity retention for truly a management. <laughs> How did you even get to, you know, set a framework for thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was super complicated, I will say, as you might guess. Um, and it really involved an exercise of 
kind of putting ourselves in the shoes of the Trulia management and thinking about who did we need to keep for various time periods. Um, and we were cognizant of preserving their culture and preserving their team um, and, and keeping folks interested. And, you know, we never lost sight of the psychology of this deal, which is, you know, being acquired by your, your primary competitor who you have competed with ferociously for 10 years. Yep. So, um, you know, we felt like we needed to keep folks energized and make everybody feel like this was a winning deal. And this, this is a good spot, I think, too, to jump off into one of the really interesting things about this deal. The plan was never, or at least at the beginning, uh, not immediately, to uh, combine the two products. I mean, they're still very much separate brands, separate products, separate sites with separate customer bases. So, of course, you needed um, Trulia Management to stay involved and motivated, and they were obviously very good at running Trulia. Um, how did you guys at Zillow sort of evaluate from that spectrum of completely independent Trulia within the Zillow group umbrella to merging Trulia directly with, with Zillow.com? Um, what was that evaluation process like? Well, we always knew that we wanted to keep both brands. Um, you know, it's, it's easy when you're looking at Zillow in a vacuum to kind of forget about what a strong business and strong brand truly was on its own. So there was a lot of brand equity there, very strong team doing different things than we were doing, even though, you know, our ultimate consumer missions were very well aligned. Um, and we knew that there were, you know, consumers out in the marketplace who strongly preferred one over the other. Um, so there, there never was any question about, you know, just folding the Trulia brand into Zillow. But what we did recognize was there were a lot of other things that we could um, fold into one. For example, our ingestion of real estate listings, yep. we run from a central source now. So there's efficiency there, um, which unlike in, you know, more industrial type mergers of, of competitors, rather than us um, shedding product development resources because of these efficiencies, instead, it let us deploy a bunch of very talented people to new products and new projects that we never would have had time to do on our own. Uh, perfect example of that is there's a substantial uh, development team in San Francisco that were former Trulia people who now work for Zillow Group broadly, and they developed our premier agent app, which is one of our most successful product launches of this year and is really the foundation for a lot of the developments that we've been seeing in our ad products. So, um, you know, it, it was a goldmine of talent that we could deploy to things that were far more interesting in the end for both our consumers and our advertisers. Yeah. Can you, you mentioned the premier agent, uh, um, I guess, product or business line. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what the strategy is uh, behind that for Zillow Group All Up? Sure. So, um, you know, fundamentally what it is, is a subscription-based advertising product where agents pay to be promoted next to for sale listings to be potential buyers agents for consumers. Um, with the acquisition of Trulia, that advertising is purchased by agents across both properties. So the agents are advertising on both Zillow and Trulia. Um, and it has been, you know, it, it is the workhorse of our revenue. 
um, definitely the focus of, of our efforts, our sales efforts, as well as our, our development efforts. It's been hugely successful. Um, more recently, what we've been seeing is really innovative and entrepreneurial agents who are forming agent teams and buying um, advertising in, in large quantities and really building big businesses from which to operate. One of the things that we talk a lot about on this show is um, <laughs> we joke about it. Uh, you know, Ben Thompson, we are just huge fans of his writing and his thinking. And, um, you know, he talks about aggregation theory and uh, uh, one of the consequences, aggregation theory being that, um, you know, in the kind of the information economy as opposed to the industrial economy, uh, aggregating customers and having the best customer experience and ability to do that is the winning strategy versus in an industrial economy where uh, distribution is costly and has friction. You want to aggregate distribution and think about customers second. And um, one of the things I love about the Zillow Group business and this merger in particular is it's such a like pure play example of that. Like there are these levers in distribution that by being internet-based um you have and then by combining these businesses whether it's acquiring the data feeds about data on homes and home sales um, which we'll get into in a minute because there's more drama to come there um or or advertising sales um or you know what have you your website backends it doesn't make sense for any of that to be separate but what does make sense uh to put the combined effort of the companies into is exactly what you're saying is developing these great customer experiences, whether it's the advertising customer or the, the, you know, homeowner, home buyer customer. Um, it's, it's cool to watch. And it, so when you guys were, were thinking about the rationale for this merger, was that like, as you're identifying kind of the key levers for this, like were those, was that at the front of your mind? Or? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I would say, it has unfolded in a way that was even far more beneficial than we could have imagined. Um, you know, we, we were most focused on the acceleration of our audience growth, which is, yep. you know, natural when you're running an internet media business. Um, and we thought that there would be some other benefits of scale, but those have far exceeded our expectations. And real estate listings is a perfect example of that. I mean, we we struggled, and I, I see. I think we're going to get to this a little bit later about the listings drama. You know, we we struggled in acquiring listings um, over the years. Uh, there were parties who just didn't want to provide them to us. Now it's pretty difficult for listings providers to look at you know, the, the dominant real estate brand on the web and say, oh, no, we, you know, it's not in our seller's interest to have their listings on Zillow or Trulia. It just, it, it's unfathomable to make that argument anymore. Yeah. So that has certain, our ability to attract direct listings was certainly strengthened by this acquisition because of the scale. And that, that perfectly follows the, you know, same, same framework that you can apply to a Facebook or a Google that, you know, if it's if it's what the users want and it's what the the people on their app or on their website, um, the best user experience they can flock to, it gives you enormous power in in you know getting the content to get in front of them and then run whatever business you want to on top of that. And in Zillow and Trulia's case, it's you know um, selling advertisers to uh, uh, I'm sorry, selling advertisements to the real estate agents who want to list next to those properties. Yeah. Uh, ben, you're, exactly. you're bleeding into my tech theme, but all right, let's get through the let's get through the acquisition drama, uh, which is still more juice to come, and uh, and then we'll get into the 
also fun stuff on on tech themes um trulia's board comes back with a counter offer at 34 and a half percent um and then also starts to it includes official terms on some of the non-price stuff. So includes a go shop clause, uh, which for our listeners who aren't familiar with that would basically mean that um, if this clause were in the merger agreement after it was signed and announced, Trulia could still entertain other offers from other potential acquirers. They also wanted a fairly large breakup fee in case the merger didn't happen that Zillow would have to pay. Um, and to give people enough, uh, to give people kind of a sense of how taxing this is on an organization, um, the breakup fee ended up being $150 million. So that's effectively the kind of opportunity cost that um, the two parties believe that uh, Trulia could be spending focusing on their own operations instead of being distracted by a deal that didn't go through. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, just imagine um, how many people and how much time it would take to, to justify $150 million of value. Yeah. Uh, and, and interestingly, not even a day goes by the Zillow board basically says right off the bat, like, nope, not going to fly. No way. 33% final offer and no go shop, uh, in the, in the agreement. Um, what was that like when you guys received that counter offer? Oh gosh, I'd have to mine my memory (laughs) on that one. I mean, it was, you know, this is a dance. So you don't throughout this process, I try to avoid placing too much weight on any specific set of terms that somebody is is coming back with because we know where we're going to end up because we know what we're willing to tolerate and you just you kind of push each other around. So I, I don't recall that there was any particular shock, um, you know, with an acquisition of a competitor like this. There was just no way we were going to entertain a go shop. It, it wouldn't have made sense. Um, and honestly, I'm not sure it would have made sense for either of us because it just would have created a, you know, some, some frenzy in the market, um, that wasn't going to benefit either of us in the end. So, you know, I, I don't recall any particular drama associated with that. We knew what we were marching toward and what we would tolerate. Yeah, there was, there was no way that, um, at least you guys were going to have that. So July 28th, finally, the merger gets announced and, uh, you start working towards close uh, and I should mention here, because the, when we walk through it like this, it makes it feel like all that was happening was the price negotiation. You have to picture, you know, 50 people or so at Zillow working on the merger agreement and all the diligence yeah. because we needed to announce it right away. So, it, you know, it was a pretty nerve wracking period of time where we were still waiting to reach agreement on key terms. But meanwhile, we're negotiating the whole host of other things that you negotiate in the merger agreement. Which um, <laughs> gets me to the, the what I think is the certainly the most amusing part of this deal um, that I was going to bring up, you know, after you close on, announce on July 28th, uh, and, and then and news comes out and the market reacts. Uh, but news also come, uh, comes out then that um, Trulia's co-founder, uh, not Pete, but uh, Sami uh, Inkinen, was literally... In a in a rowboat, uh, in a in a cruise skull, rowing across the Pacific Ocean for the entire time that this negotiation was going on. (laughs) That is right. That is right. You know, I don't know what it was like in that boat, but we probably would, uh, you know, jockey to say who was feeling a little bit more miserable at the time. (laughs) (laughs) And so he was. He was. He and his wife, the two of them, in a in a rowboat. You know, in in a cruise skull 
rowing thousands of miles across the Pacific yeah, Ocean to Hawaii, from, <laughs> to California, Hawaii, Hawaii. from California. Yeah. What, were you able to reach him by <laughs> satellite phone or, you know, was, <laughs> did that, what was that? You like? know, I honestly don't remember, um, whether he had given someone his proxy before he left. I don't believe he was in any kind of substantive contact beyond, you know, making sure they were safe out on the boat. Um, but I, I really just don't remember. <laughs> well, presumably he'd given proxy to somebody because uh, I, I would imagine his, his, he would need to vote his shares uh, for, um, for the deal. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's a first year on Acquire. Like yeah, that is a first. A yeah. <laughs> we have never had a story like that. It's pretty awesome. Uh, he seems like quite a, uh, quite a cool guy and, uh, and character as you would imagine from that. So that was, that was sort of all the pre-closed challenges, but then the, then the, the well, pre-announced challenges and then the post-announcement challenges start. So this deal underwent a serious amount of FTC uh, and government regulatory scrutiny, right? I mean, uh, there were two requests for information, which is uncommon. Typically the FTC will make one request for information in reviewing, you know, coming to a decision, uh, which they ultimately decided that, Julian Zillow was not, but whether this merger would create a monopoly in the market, which obviously would be illegal. Um, and, uh, and so typically they'll do one request, but in this case they did two, and that's usually taken as a bad sign by the market. And indeed, when that happened, the share prices reacted negatively. What was all that you know, drama like? I mean, you guys must have been on knife's edge. Yeah, it was, um, it was a pretty nerve-wracking period for all of us. Um, you know, I, I essentially spent four months in DC full time wow. trying to get the deal pushed through. Um, for, for those out there who, who aren't familiar with the FTC approach in this kind of case, what, what they're trying to determine is what is the correct definition of a market. And once they have defined that market, then whether there is monopoly pricing power in the market based upon the combination. And, you know, they, the FTC was having fits and starts about, you know, is, is online real estate, is the online real estate portal market a market unto itself? Um, and you know, our view was no, I mean, most of the activity that takes place in this market takes place way outside of where we are. You know, one, one stat about that is what I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, which is, you know, we think we, we touch about 4% of transactions. Um, and we think we have a small percentage of advertising spend by real estate agents. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, if you look solely at consumer transaction to real estate portals only, we're pretty big. So um, tons of back and forth and economic analysis, hours and hours and hours of depositions. Um, and ultimately, we think they reached the right decision. But I had a lot of sleepless nights, I can tell you that. And, um, you know, for me personally, I felt like the weight of the deal was on me running this process. Um, but we had, dev, but also general counsel, right? Right. Well, I, I have, we have a general counsel of Brad Owens, um, who, who runs most of this, but for this, I, I'm still chief legal officer and I was on point for the deal. So I was the one in the thick of it while he was holding down all the things that needed to be done in Seattle. So, um, yeah, it was, it was quite a ton. I think I aged a few extra years in that six months. I bet. How, how does the FTC decide what the market is? I mean, is it like a, 
a number of transactions or is it a dollar amount or how do they determine? Because you could imagine two people hanging out on the street. One guy wants to sell something to the other. That right there is a market. Yeah. So they, they look at it from, through many, many different lenses. Um, you know, we had multiple economic experts, many, many antitrust lawyers who, um, work on these kinds of cases every day. Mm -hmm. And, um, what they're looking for is any characterization of the market that can give someone, you know, additional pricing power simply by virtue of the combination is what they're concerned with. Um, it's an interesting thought process in our transaction because the pricing power they were thinking about, of course, our products are all free to consumers, was will the price of online real estate advertising be impacted by this combination for real estate agents? So, you know, does it become more expensive for real estate agents to advertise simply by virtue of this combination? Yeah. How deep did they go? I mean, I imagine it was a six-month review. And as you said, you, you practically lived in Washington for four months. I mean, were they uh, were they subpoenaing or the, or the equivalent thereof in this process information? I mean, like, were they looking back at, like, the Series A pitch decks of both companies? Or, oh, yeah. Like, wow. All of our email, everything. Wow. Yeah. To see our own characterization of the transaction, right? Um, and given the long history of this acquisition dance, there was a lot there. Um, they were talking to other market participants. They were talking to individual real estate agents. Um, you know, we didn't have full visibility into all of their activities, but we would hear anecdotally from people in the industry who would say they had had calls or been deposed or provided documents, and they had their own economic experts. So uh, it was an incredibly in-depth and detailed process. Yeah, I mean, it's a good reminder for those of us, you know, it's in the, you know, broader defined Silicon Valley ecosystem. It's so easy to be like blase about, oh, I'm starting a startup. We're going to like take over this market or, you know, just like you actually need to be really careful about how you characterize things because um, you can Absolutely. end up in this nightmare scenario. Yeah. And even with, you know, perfectly innocent characterizations of market dynamics can be you know, taken out of context or paired with other information and can cause real questions about your intentions and, and the potential outcome. Yep. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. 
And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. Well, hey, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about... Um, um, the MLSs yeah, and data feeds, exactly. but I, maybe let's do that quick. And then I really want to talk about um, Zillow Group's overall acquisition strategy and sort yeah. of how it fits into the landscape for the next few years and, and kind of, Kathleen, give you uh, a chance to talk about that. So um, let's do the, let's talk about kind of what, yeah. what happened well, with those Well, re- real quick, and then we'll wrap up the, the history. Uh, the, the final twist in the story here is right before so the ftc finally approves the the merger in february and then it it goes through and you close the deal but right before that happens um both trulia and zillow were getting i believe uh, if not a majority a significant amount of your real estate listings from a company called list hub which is a data provider which was actually owned by a third competitor in the market uh move.com um which uh had i believe just been acquired by news corp um and ListHub actually cuts off both Trillo and Z- Truly, Trillo, Truly and Zillow from these data feeds, which are the lifeblood of your business. And uh, so you had this other wrinkle of like, now you have to go rebuild your supply essentially uh, from the ground up by signing direct uh, direct data deals with all the the MLS or multiple listing service for people who aren't familiar with the market. These are local organizations that aggregate real estate uh, listings as they come on the market um, in each, you know, each city, each, you know, demog- each geography kind of within the country. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of them. And so all of a sudden now you guys have to go do <laughs> biz dev deals with all these folks directly. I mean, it, wow. <laughs> Can you just talk about that process yeah. and what that was like? Sure. So um, let me just tie that back to the FTC for a second. Because, of course, one of our arguments to the FTC is how can we be a monopoly when our oil, which are is our listings, are controlled by a competitor who's sponsored by the National Association of Realtors? It, it kind of boggles the mind to think we could be the monopoly when they provide us all these listings. Um, so, you know, the... The, the cutoff of the listings actually came as a result of a natural termination of our contract. And we had engaged in negotiations to try and renew. So it, it wasn't overnight. Um, we, we knew this could happen. So we had been gearing up for a substantial amount of time to try and cover this. Because, of course, you never want to run your business at the mercy of, of one of your competitors, which is yep. you know essentially w- what that was. Now, that's sort of a plain way to put it. One thing that people don't focus on is there was actually a pretty symbiotic relationship between Zillow and Trulia and ListHub because ListHub's primary business is not syndication of listings. It's the sale of listing reports to agents that say things like your listing on 123 Main Street was viewed 50 times on Zillow. Mm. So 
it, you know, it, it's not as straightforward as to say we were at their mercy because actually we were a key ingredient to their business as well. It's just that once they were acquired by Move and then subsequently Move was acquired by News Corp, they were thinking about that business differently from a strategic perspective. Yeah. So we had already engaged in a ton of effort, um, knowing that this could happen and not wanting to, to, you know, have this relationship with a competitor. But, you know, we certainly had to try pretty hard at that. And as I said at the very beginning of this conversation, you know, one of the unforeseen benefits of the combination was that our increased scale sure made it a lot easier to get those listings. Not that it was easy and it's an ongoing process, but, you know, it, it was a lot easier to go as number one and two in the market to try and acquire these listings than it had been when we were on our own. Yep. Let's move on. I think, Ben, the right frame to discuss um, what you were talking about in Zillow's M&A strategy generally is uh, let's let's quickly do acquisition category. To me, this is pretty clearly a business line acquisition of, well, I guess, I don't know, maybe you think differently. Like, Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. The way I was going to categorize it is, so um, Kathleen and for our new listeners, we have uh, several different categories, people, technology, product, business line, asset, which is newly added or other. And in this scenario, um, you know, what I really think was, was the way I look at this deal is um, it's a rapid way to expand the kind of core marketplace uh, that, that Zillow offers. So, you know, yeah. on the supply side of the marketplace, you have um, people who are looking at pages that display homes and on the demand, or, uh, yeah, and on the demand side of the, the marketplace, you have um, real estate agents that, that want to advertise their services. And so, so to me, you know, this is just um, providing, uh, it, it's buying more supply and more demand and kind of mm -hmm. putting the two together. And there's all sorts of interesting, you know, ways. Yeah, it's to, a good point. It's like, I, I totally agree with you. Like, it's a business line acquisition, but not a new business line. It's right. the same business it's, line. It's, it's buying and, more supply yeah. and demand of the yeah. same business line and, and yeah. kind of like, you know, having multiple marketplaces, but um, having ways to, for example, the, the, the combined um, portal for, for uh, um, real estate agents to, to put their, their ads on both, ads on both yep. um, you know, the, the ability to funnel to both of those marketplaces simultaneously. Yeah, I, I almost want to say asset in that case, but it's like an asset generating well, product. I don't want to create another new category. We have yeah. enough. <laughs> That's why I stuffed it into business line. Yeah, I mean, you know, another way to say it is it's, it was sort of honestly a, kind of a time machine acquisition, right? Just accelerating what each of us was doing already put it, by putting it together. Yeah. So you're exactly right. It's both sides of supply and demand. And we each, you know, combined got where we were going a lot faster. Yep. Very cool. How does this fit into, you know, what, what's the Zillow Group strategy for the next couple of years and, and why have you been doing the acquisitions you're doing and how does this fit into that picture? Yeah, so, I mean, th this one is pretty different than our other acquisitions because it really was just an acceleration of, of our scale. Um, in terms of overall strategy, I mean, we, we continue to invest in a number of different things. Um, you know, Dot Loop is a good example of a, a product that is designed to help real estate agents become more efficient and close more transactions more quickly, um, which in the end we believe will make our advertising more valuable to them. Um, it's also, you know, kind of doubling down on having agents embrace technology by closing transactions um, 
on online versus mm-hmm. on paper. Um, so that that's that's an extension of the products and services that we provide agents that really enhances the value of the advertising they buy from us. Mm. Um, you know, the other branded acquisitions, Naked Apartments, Hot Pads, and Street Easy, are just continuing to build out our portfolio of brands so that we have something for everybody for whatever they're looking for. You know, Hot Pads tends to focus on younger urban renters. Um, Street Easy is focused only on New York, primarily was focused on um, purchase and sale, but um, always had a rentals product. And now with the addition of Naked Apartments has open rentals, which are you know something that Street Easy had not um, focused on before. And as we look at, at each of these candidates, and I mean, we look literally like last year, I think we went back and counted, we looked at about 125 potential deals. We think about you know, will this accelerate something that we are already doing and, and get us there faster? Is it something we haven't figured out yet um, is another way of going. Um, but fundamental in every acquisition, what we start with is we look at the people and decide whether they are people who we could work well with within our existing um, Zillow group uh, portfolio, because Ultimately, we, we are acquiring the people who have built these brilliant products and we want them to stay. We want them to be successful with us. How do you think about, you know, when you acquire a, a naked apartments or a hot pads, you know, those properties aren't being combined. They're, they're different websites with their own um, ability to acquire traffic. Do you combine the, the back end, um, you know, real estate agent services or what, what ways do you, I hate using the word, but how do you achieve synergies and, and why is it advantageous for Zillow Group to own those businesses? Yeah. So, you know, Hot Pads is a great example. You know, one of the things that, that's pretty cool is we look at teams that are really good at certain things. And when Hot Pads joined us, we realized, for example, that they were really good at ingesting rentals feeds and normalizing them to present them in a way that was useful to consumers. So now a segment of the Hot Pads team is responsible for all rentals listing syndication throughout our entire platform. Um, and so we, t- we tend to kind of pick and choose where there are strengths within each of the teams. Um, Street Easy, for example, because they're a New York City brand, very focused on vertical living. And you know while they don't work directly on vertical living products for our other brands, they certainly inform and educate our teams about how to present a condo building versus a single family home. Very cool. So it's almost like a little reverse acquisition of, of knowledge there to get that DNA up into the, the rest of the Zillow Group products. Sure. Yeah. Let's, let's move quickly into uh, tech themes then, which is uh, one of our favorite parts of the show. I had a tech theme written down that I'm going to mention, and we'll link to this in the show notes. There was a great, great interview with Rich Barton in the New York Times a couple of years ago. The, the interview was focusing on like, you're like this hit maker. You know, you have Expedia, you have Zillow. Rich was intimately involved in the origins of Glassdoor and Avo and many other marketplace-based, really you know, important marketplace-based businesses. Uh, you know, kind of what's your secret? And, and Rich said... Um, the thing that I think about is, is quote, what piece of marketplace information do people crave and don't have? Um, I think that's really interesting. You know, Zillow is like a perfect example of that. Like, I want to know what my home's worth, you know, and I don't have that. Right. And once you give that to me, like, 
I'm like a, I'm like a mouse in a lab, but like, you know, <laughs> turning the wheel to get the cheese. I want to know every week what's my home worth. Um, and uh, I think that was a really good example. The, the other one I want to throw out quickly, um, Kathleen, that you know, you've talked about a bit on this show, um, isn't so much uh, at the normal level of technology themes for us on this show, but we talk, being a VC and working with management teams and entrepreneurs and founders, um, you know, hiring uh, and building your organization from a people perspective takes as much time as anything else in the business, if not more time. Um, and we always talk about like, oh, it's so important to hire athletes, you know, and like not literally athletes, although literally athletes can be great too. But, you know, and people talk like, well, what does that really mean? Um, and I think Zillow and, and your M&A strategy is a great example of that, of like people who are very smart, very flexible in their thinking and can adapt and over time play multiple roles because that's what you need in a startup. Like you can't predict exactly where the market's going to go, where your product's going to go, your organization. And, you know, I think... You guys have done a really good job, both in your hiring, obviously, of your management team, um, but also your acquisitions of looking for these types of people who can um, evolve their thinking and evolve their abilities as the company does, because that's going to be, you know, that's going to be the constant in, in a high growth industry. Right. No, that, that's absolutely true. And, I, you know, I can give you a couple of specific examples from the acquisitions. Um, uh, Susan Daimler, who now runs Street Easy here in New York City, which is where I'm standing right now, um, she came to us by way of acquisition of the company Bifolio that she and her husband, Matt, started. Um, and, you know, as we needed a new leader for Street Easy, Susan and Matt stepped in and now they, they play a key role in the, in the Street Easy business. So, you know, they, they went from running a, a very small company that was focused on a sharing of information among co-shoppers to now running Street Easy. So, you know, perfect example of that. Justin LaJoy, who was the founder of Diverse Solutions. Um, we've recently divested Diverse Solutions, but Justin is still with us running an entirely different product line. Uh, so we definitely look, we look for culture fit and, you know, a broad ability. Subject matter expertise is important, but it's not the critical piece. And you'll see that throughout our management team as, as we all move around in different roles and, and expand our skill sets. Very interesting. And totally, totally validates the uh, the the tech theme. Mine, um, mine. So, so what we do here at Pioneer Square Labs is come up with new business ideas and then work on them and try and spin them out as as their own startup companies. And so we're always thinking about, um, you know, how do we apply a framework from some business or or a, a theme that's been successful in the the recent years to new businesses. And one thing that uh, Zillow and Trulia totally nailed is this idea that real-world objects are also media. And in traditional media companies, you can sell advertisements uh, you know, against content, against articles people make or photos. And something that Zillow's done is, I touched on this earlier, they, they've made it a form of entertainment and um, a, a thing that people do together to, to share these listings, a lot because it's so aspirational. And Airbnb capitalizes on this too, where um, a, a lot of traffic is there not to buy, but just to like participate in that experience. Yeah. And we used to joke at, uh, when I worked at the wall street journal that this is house porn. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, and, and something that, that folks miss a lot is we didn't have any real estate listings on Zillow for the first three years. We only had those estimates. Oh, wow. Wow. Didn't, did not. So, wow. So yeah, we, was it's, there, um, I didn't know that in the, was there a business model then or was, uh, was it kind of in construction? 
You know, I was not around. I'm sure that people had in mind all kinds of different ways um, that we were going to monetize. And we tried lots of different things, different kinds of ads for homes. Um, but ultimately, the, the initial thought was build your audience first and advertisers will come. And we still believe that. And that's, you know, that's also central to the investment thesis for Trulia is you know, advertisers follow audience. So if you can increase your audience by a third over the, you know, the span of six months, um, you're going to be in a pretty good spot. Yeah, yeah. Should we move to uh, rendering a conclusion on that note? I think so. So for me, this one is uh, obviously it's very recent. So some of the acquisitions we do when we're looking back at Bungie or, or companies that are 10 plus years old, um, in previous episodes, we have a lot of information to be able to render a conclusion on. And in this case, you know, I think it's pretty new. But um, Kathleen, like you were saying, you, you know, you, you look at the financials from each of the companies over the um, entire, you know, existence of the companies, and it looks like kind of one-third, two-third. So the way that we generally grade this acquisition um, is from the perspective of the acquirer. So from Zillow Group's perspective, was this an A, B, C, D? And, you know, to, to me, this is a solid B+. Plus. It is, it, it's, it's sort of obvious. Um, it's it's uh, amazing that the legwork got, that you guys did the legwork to really get the deal done. Um, it's an accelerant to the business. You know, it, it has all kinds of returns. But, you know, our RAs, um, and we've said this on other, other episodes, are for these like ridiculous multiple, you know, 10x things. In the, in the, the Instagrams. The, yeah, the, the, the Instagrams, uh, the Androids, the things that change the course or save a business. Um, and, uh, you know, to me, I think like we've been talking about earlier, um, I, I, I feel like a, a B plus with some variance here and there to see where it goes in the next few years is, uh, is, yeah. is what one I, of the things for me, I'm, right. I'm super, I was super impressed doing the research for this episode, reading, reading the filings and then, you know, talking to you now, like, um, you guys did just such a, like a professional, uh, and, um, elegant job uh, valuing this deal, negotiating it, making it happen, dealing with all these roadblocks along the way. And, um, you know, uh, actually this will come up in my carve out, uh, in a minute, but, um, you know, when the, the FTC review and the, um, <laughs> and the list hub, you know, situation, even though you knew that might have been coming anyway, um, really impeccable job. like, this is like just a, a, an A plus execution deal. Yes. Overall, I agree with you, Ben, you know, it's a fantastic deal, but uh, when Instagram is our benchmark, uh, that's that's <laughs> just that's just a different class of of acquisition. And uh, you guys might uh, ultimately have Instagram type acquisitions that way surprise you on the upside. But you know, you thought this would give you, you knew exactly that this would boost your traffic by thirty per, you know, about a third. You paid about a third of the combined company market cap for it. it made total sense. Um, so I'm going to go also with. With B and then the plus, B plus, B for the deal and plus for the execution. Excellent. Well, I, I will humbly accept your compliments on the execution. Um, I often said during the time that everything was happening that I felt like I was living in a textbook um, <laughs> and that the opportunity to participate in a deal like this in the way it played out really only comes along once in a lifetime. Yeah. So um, it was a fantastic experience for our whole team. Um, and, you know, I think I think B plus is, is fair because I think we're early days still in in reaping the benefits of this combination. And as I said earlier, there are all kinds of ways in which we've benefited that we hadn't foreseen. Yeah. All right. Let's move uh, quickly into the uh, the tail end of our show. Um, 
Uh, we have three quick sections, follow-ups on episodes we've done in the past where new news has come out, uh, hot takes on deals that are relevant in the moment in the press, and uh, and then carve-outs, uh, my favorite at the end. First, follow-ups. Ben, um, Snap Inc. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I'll be buying some spectacles. I can tell you yeah. that much. Uh, Snapchat uh, is releasing... Uh, basically like the cool version of Google Glass yeah. and changing their name to Snap Inc. Had an Apple moment. They are. And, you know, when we talk about Apple moment, I haven't been this excited about um, kind of like following a company uh, since like the early days of Apple's renaissance. Yeah. Like I can't help but feel like what, what Snapchat is doing right now um, is so, it's like smart and super ambitious and so unexpected. I, I tweeted this when... Um, uh, you know, they, they dropped chat and they just became Snap Inc. It reminds me a lot of Apple dropping computer from their yep. name. And they have ambitions far beyond being constrained to exactly the, the form that they're in now. And I think that, um, you know, they're, I've been thinking like, oh, they're this new form of communication, but this kind of changes it outside the software world. And I think where Snap is going right, where Google went wrong with glasses they're not starting with these ridiculous grand plans of like, you can do anything on this thing. The, the comp for me is, you know, you look at Postmates and they said, you can order anything. And Uber said, you can literally just order me to drive you from here to there. And yep. people immediately latched on to that. Oh, I get it. Uber yep. is for taking me places. And so I think with, um, you know, Google Glass being who knows what it will do for you, um, what the Spectacles does is here, it's, it's just for this little thing. We'll see if we expand from there. But right now it's, it's a toy. It's, it's almost flamboyant. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. Try yeah. it out. My, um, my favorite take on this uh, was I saw um, Bill Gurley retweeted a tweet from one of the Collison brothers, the founders of Stripe, um, uh, saying something to the effect of it is uh, Snapchat with this move, like what is following Snapchat in general, like, they are just so astonishingly original in what they do. And I think that's yeah. like why they've kind of captured this zeitgeist. Uh, you know, it's, um, they're not like, you know, X for Y. It's, you know, even though this is you know, Google Glass done, right? It's like, who ever would have thought that Snapchat would release sunglasses that take video? Like, super cool. Yeah. Kathleen, are you going to buy a pair? I'm on my way now. <laughs> no, I thought they were pretty cool. And I have to say, I, I like the blue lipstick too. Yeah. I've actually seen lots of comments about that. Um, hot takes moving on from one social media empire to, you know, on the rise to one uh, potentially on the decline. Twitter. Whew, we talked about this with, uh, with Alex uh, from Bloomberg on our last show, but um, also heating up. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's super interesting that the most credible rumor yet is uh, is the, the Disney, um, yeah. the potential Disney offer coming in. And uh, awesome having Alex on the last show. Alex actually broke the story that, uh, you know, people familiar with the matter, both from Disney and from Twitter. People, Ben. People, not people, person. That's right. Um, are, are, are sources in, uh, you know, kind of confirming that um, the, the two are in talks. So uh, it seems to be a little out of the woodwork, but makes a lot of sense when you think about Disney's other acquisitions of late. It's not just, uh, you know, Mickey Mouse. It's it's uh, really a media empire. I yeah. Mean, if if well, Disney I mean, owns ESPN, why couldn't they own Twitter? We've Disney's made some great acquisitions that we've talked about on the show already. Pixar, Lucasfilm. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, like so many companies these days, like they face as successful as they are, like they're an industrial age company. And like, what is Disney's future in the information age? And they've done great things organically. You know, magic bands are an incredible experience if you haven't gotten to do it yet um, at that, the parks. That's the thing you wear on your, your wrist at the Disney theme um, parks. 
but yeah, well, I don't know. Who knows what will happen with this? There will be an episode coming, I'm sure. Uh, next, real quick hot take. Uh, we got some requests for this in the Slack channel. Um, this is pretty amazing. A company called Applovin uh, that is a um, mobile app uh, marketing, broad-based marketing firm, um, you know, customer acquisition, advertising, and analytics, um, was just acquired by a Chinese private equity firm for $1.4 billion dollars. They were basically bootstrapped. They'd raised about $4 million in kind of seed money that they didn't really need. They were profitable the whole time. Um, pretty incredible story. Yeah, and pretty unprecedented to have a, a, a bootstrap company um, turn into that. I mean, they almost always have, have institutional backing. Yep. And I think uh, my only comment on this one is it's interesting to see how history repeats itself. I think 10 years ago, we were in the same place with um, email marketing and the start of sort of the, the digital marketing hub. that we talked about with Scott on Exact Target. Exactly, exactly. Now seeing it in the in the mobile era. Yep. Okay, that's what we got. Uh, carveouts, Ben. Yeah. So for for any new listeners, this is a thing that is unrelated to the episode uh, or really the theme of the show in general, but it's just something uh, something we've enjoyed over the past few weeks. Um, there's a, a great video floating around called the Marvel Symphonic Universe. And uh, it's, it's on YouTube, and it looks at um, why is it that we can, on command, hum the theme of Star Wars, um, the, the James Bond, but when asked, how about any of the Marvel movies, despite being the highest grossing franchise ever in, in Hollywood, none of us can hum a Marvel franchise theme. Oh. So it goes into... Yeah, I have no idea what the... Yeah, when you start huh. peeling that apart, one of the really interesting things they bring up is uh, temp music. And it's so cool to watch um, what music the director used as temporary music. Like, oh, yeah, grab that one song from that other movie and throw it in until the, mu- the real music is written and composed for, for this movie. And it's a, it's a super interesting 10-minute uh, watch. So highly recommend it. Ah, that's fascinating. Um, mine is a book I just finished reading um, uh, that uh, lots of people recommended to me uh, is Phil Knight, the founder of Nike's memoir, Shoe Dog, uh, and um, had some personal significance for me because Phil actually, uh, I went to went to Stanford Business School, which or I studied on the Knight Management Center campus that Phil uh, donated to Stanford, an incredible, incredible new campus for the business school that was constructed a few years ago. Uh, and then Phil uh, gave the graduation speech at my, at my graduation. Um, and it was uh, in many ways, uh, although we didn't know it at the time, kind of an outline of this book. And uh, I went back and rewatched it. Um, the book is fantastic. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, I guess, broadly, you'd call it a business book, but it's, um, it's really just the story of Nike and this, and it's pretty incredible. And um, one of my, my favorite thing from it is uh in the introduction, Phil talks about you know, going for a run in 1962. He just graduated from Stanford, had this crazy idea to start a you know shoe company, and um, you know this, he's just thinking like, I have no idea where this is going to go, but I'm just I'm just running. I'm going to keep running, and I'm not going to stop. Don't stop. And that's just you know he's like, I made so many mistakes, so many things I regret along the way, but like I just kept going and like didn't stop, and um, and that's where he is today. So a great book, very cool. Kathleen, do you have a car out? Sure. Um, Mine's a little more frivolous. My husband and I spend our free time traveling to uh, music festivals and thought I would uh, recommend the band of the summer, which for us was the Struts. So if you're in need of a dose of glam rock, I would say check them out. Nice. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Awesome. Well, um, I 
think that is uh, that's all we've got for today. So, uh, Kathleen, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? Um, you can find me at Kathleen Phillips on Twitter with one L in Phillips. On Disney Twitter. No. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> awesome. Thank you again, Kathleen. This has been super fun. And um, also always great to have a hometown Seattle company on the show. That's right. That's right. It was my pleasure. Thank you guys very much. Yeah. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Well, uh, for any listeners, um, if this is your first episode and you'd like to hear more, uh, subscribe through your favorite podcasting client. Um, and if, uh, if you enjoyed it, feel free to share it with your friends or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Huh.